Sit on my ass and watch the game like everybody else And when it's on the line, that's when they take me down from the shelf You think this kind of pressure is easy, you're just kidding yourself Good morning and welcome to episode 767 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, brought to you by the Play Index, BaseballReference.com. I'm Sam Miller, along with Ben Lindbergh of ESPN. Hi, Ben. How are you? All right. Good. How was your uh, weekend? Just wrote some book. Oh, Not nice. sure if I like book writing. I, I would like it if it were all that. that like it, it would. I think it'd be nice to be completely submerged in one writing project for a long time but of course that's not how it is you still have to feed yourself and right write other things for other people and reply to emails and do a podcast and Mm -hmm. uh then it sucks yeah i just want a more constant supply of compliments i think (laughs) yeah no i know and when it's no fun to write something and then have no one see it for months (laughs) i want i want feedback i'm used to writing something and then everyone sees it the next day yeah, the annual is very can be very dissatisfying for me for the same reason. Not not so much the weight, but just that uh, people don't like read a book and then immediately ping you with <laughs> like praise for it that everybody can see. Yeah, and so you're really you don't get the same kind of feedback, and a lot of it is limited to Amazon comments, which get dominated by the people who respond the fastest, <laughs> which is to say the people who aren't really reading it. And the people and who give you one star because the shipping, the shipping. was slow. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, the shipping was slow. Uh, Speaking of our Amazon page, our book has a cover on there now. So people can go look at that. Big news. Yep. I went bowling on Friday night, and I bowled seven rounds. Uh-huh. And I hadn't bowled in uh, 17 years. And I have a very violent delivery. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm what's called a high effort pitcher, uh-huh. yeah, uh, and uh, very violent, very all all cutters basically, hard, <laughs> spinny, and uh, in order to do this, I have to sort of slam down to a knee to get under it, and it's a mess. Anyway, uh, it seemed like it was fun, and then Saturday I woke up really sore, really sore. Uh-huh. And I thought, oh, this is bad. Sunday I was probably triple as sore. Yeah, I, that's what happened. Almost literally couldn't walk up one flight of stairs. I, I almost had to call for help. That's so, how bad my body is. So it's your legs. It's everything. It's my legs. It's my it's my arms. It's my uh, core. It's the side of the the side of my right foot where a lot of pressure was going is bad. Uh, the glutes are bad. Right now, the left thigh is the worst. Uh, the the knee that I drop down to is bad. Uh, and I can't pour milk. <laughs> I cannot write. Anyway, that was yesterday. Today I woke up thinking I would be healed. And I'm somewhere between Saturday and Sunday. Uh-huh. So I'm not telling you this because I want sympathy. I'm. This is a warning. This is a public service warning. Writing be, is really bad exercise. Be careful about bowling. <laughs> so just bowling? What about when you shagged flies in Sonoma or threw in Sonoma or Swung bats in Sonoma this summer. Is it any any activity? <laughs> uh, those yeah, everything that you do for the first time in a long time makes you sore, and those made me sore. Yeah, the swinging the bat 
made me sore, but not like this, just a little bit. And the, the yeah. shagging flies was fine, except that I did the thing with the neck. I kind of pulled my neck, and that hurt for three weeks. But that yeah. was a little bit of a fluke. So I think the bowling. Yeah, sounds bad. I haven't bowled in, in years, so I'll, yeah. I'll stare clear. Just imagine somebody asking you to throw a 15-pound ball as hard as you can 150 times in an hour and 20 minutes. And it does seem like a lot of effort when you put yeah, it out. It's a heavy ball. It's about as heavy a ball as you can get in a sport. Uh-huh. All right. Okay. <laughs> Anything else? No. Nope. All right. Let's talk about the hot stove. Okay. Primarily, I think we'll probably talk about the Craig Kimbrell trade. We might also talk about the Colby Rasmus acceptance of the qualifying offer. We might also talk about the Marco Estrada non-acceptance and further signing uh, to a two-year deal uh, and what they tell us about things. Uh, but let's start with the Craig Kimbrell move. Mm-hmm. Uh, fi- I think I think it's probably safe to say that five years ago, uh, this would be the easiest blog post you ever wrote. Yeah, well, it's <laughs> I'm still seeing the same blog post. Okay, well, uh, I don't know. Yeah, all right, but all the same. Five years ago, this is like easy. This is like the most. This is by the numbers. You just talk about how you don't overpay for closers. You don't undervalue prospects. You look at marginal value. You look at a few things, and it's pretty much done. Do you feel any more? Do you feel? Per, do you personally feel that it is any harder to write that blog post now than it was five years ago? Well, it's more boring because we've read it so many times, and so therefore there's pressure not to write that same blog post. Although, as I said, I mean, a lot of the reactions I saw basically boiled down to that. So if I were writing that post, I would try to come up with ways to not make it sound like that just because it it is just very rote at this point, and I think the readers expect to see that, and so... You want to be creative without just being intentionally wrong. So I guess... Well, so you think that... Uh, I get. I mean, my primary question is, is that... Do you, is that is it still as slam dunk of a position? I don't know. I, I think there's maybe more openness to the idea that elite relievers are more valuable than war says they are. Although there are a lot of people who make good cases that they're not. But just the fact that I mean, you know, everything is the Royals right now, and so people draw the Royals' conclusions, and Jess Sullivan wrote something last week about the value of elite relievers and how teams with elite relievers did slightly better than you would think based on their war, just like a win a season, which is not so much that closers are suddenly way more valuable than we thought they were, but maybe... If they're, you know, two war or three war, maybe it's three war or four war instead. So that's something. I mean, it still, I think, boils down to the fact that they don't throw that many innings. And a lot of the times the innings that they do throw are not the highest leverage in the game, although the closer tends to have the highest leverage in the bullpen still. So this seems like a lot of prospect to give up for that kind of player still. So there's, I think there's more openness to the alternative or there's more questioning of whether that dogma is true, but I don't know that anyone has convincingly shown that it's not other than the fact that teams keep treating it that way. Yeah. 
I think there are maybe three kind of ambiguities that are worth thinking about, uh, not just about the closer question, but about all sorts of factors that kind of go into assessing a trade like this that aren't specific necessarily to this trade, but that feel somewhat specific to the era. One of them is that, yes, the everybody looks at the Royals and says, boy, what'd they do? And one of the lessons that you know people take from it, and I don't feel like it's an it's a wrong lesson. If you just look at how the Royals won, the Royals won because their bullpen was phenomenal. Like that, that is as a description of what happened. Their awesome relievers pitched awesomely and uh, helped them win, uh, not just win, but probably even win more than we would have thought uh, with a uh, a mindset that sort of didn't give extra credit to that. Yeah. Now, so so that's one one let so you could take from that. Ooh, let's be the Royals. Let's do like the Royals. That worked, but it's not what the Royals did is not trade for Craig Kimbrell. What the Royals did is not trade. You know, sign Andrew Miller. They got these great relievers in a totally unreplicatable uh, way. Right? They didn't know that generic fourth, fifth starter Wade Davis was going to be the best reliever in the game. We know that starters get better, but Wade Davis wasn't particularly any better than Zach Britton, who turned out to just be a pretty good reliever, like a you know, good one, but not the kind that wins pennants automatically. Uh, Jordano Ventura, not Jordano Ventura, Kelvin Herrera was a guy that they signed forever ago as a you know 16-year-old, and eventually he got pretty good. And Ryan Madsen was... The reason Jerry Depoto got fired yeah. <laughs> to some degree, signing Ryan Madsen. And, you know, Greg Holland was a 30th round pick or something like that. Uh, so, like, if your lesson is let's get awesome relievers, great. That there That is sort of the equivalent of step two, question mark, question mark, question mark, though, right? Yeah. Like, that, I don't know that, I don't know that there's ever been a point in history, or at least recent history, in last 20 years, in modern history where teams weren't all running around paying top dollar trying to get elite relievers. That was, it's, it's never like elite relievers were ever undervalued. Everybody's been trying this since the Nasty Boys and Tony La Russa, basically. They've been trying to get elite relievers. That's the problem, is that when you try to do it, you get Blue Shield of California, right. <laughs> a reference that eh, a third of our readers listeners will get. Right. You get Blue Shield of California, and then people fire you, and write uh, other people write, chapters in books about uh, how you did it wrong. So uh, so, so picking the best reliever or one of the best relievers has traditionally been a, a pretty bad strategy, not because relievers are worthless, but because of that. So the other thing is that there's always kind of, kind of been a little carve out to this rule where even stat heads would say, well, relievers are so unpredictable, so undependable, so short-lived, so easily replaced, so quickly destroyed that you shouldn't do this, except for the very, 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 very few at the top. And that was yeah. basically a way of saying, except Mariano. Like, we do, like nobody wants to be the anti-Mariano right. position. And so there was always a loophole. If you could get Mariano Rivera, that was... The exception. We're good with that. Yes. And Craig Kimbrell is, if there is one of those in his era, is that or has been that or had been that. And he is 
the guy, I mean, he his numbers put Mariano Rivera's numbers to shame in the regular season mm-hmm. to date. He is he is the greatest reliever of all time, probably, uh, if you don't factor in that there might be a decline phase coming. And obviously Mariano has the postseason thing. So Ma- I'm not saying that he's you know, Mariano. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not taking an anti, I'm not falling into that trap. I'm not taking an anti-Mariano. Okay. But in the regular season, thus far, Craig Kimbrell is, had been, has been, the greatest and most uh, consistent and most dominant reliever of all time, I think. Fair? Fair, yeah. Probably, okay. Now, you so... Could, you, you can say that he's maybe already declining a little, but... Right, exactly. So mm-hmm. you, you, the question is whether Kimbrell still qualifies for that, though, uh, and whether that was ever a good rule of thumb. Rivera was a freak show, and maybe part of being a freak show was that he kept the freak show going. Maybe there's... Maybe maybe he is the freak show even within the freak shows, and if you took 10 other Mariano Rivera's, nine of them would fall apart. Kimbrell was not as dominant last year. He was another... I mean, part of the reason that he was a bad move for Preller is that he turned out to just be a pretty good reliever. He was, you know, one of the 30 best relievers in baseball, but he wasn't a clear number one, two, or three. And uh, so for that reason... Uh, I think that you could argue that the Mariano Mariano loophole may not have necessarily been good, but whether it was or not, Craig Kimbrell may not necessarily still qualify. He's 28 years old now, uh, which is not young, and he um, I would say that his his most dominant year is now four years back. There's a, there were very small, uh, almost irrelevant, but very small declines. For two years after that, he was not quite the same otherworldly pitcher as far as his strikeout rate, particularly, and as far as his control, particularly. His FIP in 2012 was 0.78, and it was more like two, which puts him at the top, but not Pedro. You know, like that's not, you're not the Pedro of your generation if your FIP is two. And then last year it went way up. And, um, and uh, so it's, yeah, I think there's a reasonable case to be made that you could. Uh, you could not like trading Kimbrel prices for Kimbrel right now. I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I agree with that, but there's a case for that. So that's a all right. So that's the first ambiguity. The wow. second We've one. We've got two more yeah. ambiguities to go. The second one. Yeah. That's, that's, I don't want to talk about Marco Estrada. <laughs> say. Uh, second one is the idea that well, 29 other. If say there's a move that you want to make, it seems good to you and 29 other teams wouldn't do it, it's really hard to know whether that means that you should do it because you found a market inefficiency or if that means that you're an idiot. And, uh, like, I've never been able to quite square the, uh, the what seems to me to be the um, uh, winner's curse paradox where, uh, it, you know, if, you're, if you win the bidding on an item, you probably overpaid because 29 other teams said... I don't want to pay that much. And yet, like, that can't be. Like, some some moves have to be good. A lot of them have to be good. Uh, yeah. Half of them, roughly half of them. Well, maybe that's, I mean, that's free agency, right? Because it's open to everyone, whereas a trade is not necessarily open to everyone. You but might imagine, be yeah. better at, at soliciting trades, or you might just match up better with a team than the other teams do. Yeah, there might be other, I mean, right, there are, baseball is a little different than, a buying um, $40 million works of art because there are a lot of different ways 
to acquire in baseball. But um, the you could I think you could look at this and say that there has been a bit of a correction in the reliever market. We don't see I think we don't see quite the same le- uh, number of uh, very long, very expensive. I mean, you know, there's no BJ Ryan contracts being given out right now, right? There's not f- really five year what would be the equivalent of like 80 or 90 million dollar contracts being given out to relievers with a year and a half of good relief, right? Right. We've gotten past that. And right? I think so. I think yes. Mm-hmm. And I would say that there's probably not the, the of the 30 teams that are out there, I would guess that uh, maybe, I don't know, two or three would consider something like the Justin Spire contract that the Angels gave out seven, uh, you know, eight, nine years ago, or the Brandon League deal that Ned Coletti gave out a few years ago. There might be two or three, and I feel like 10 years ago, that was just considered, like, that was what you paid. Like, you had to go four years on marginal relievers, like four years, like they were giving out four-year deals to marginal relievers. Yeah. And so someone's, there's someone's gonna cite some four-year deal from last year, probably, but but not as not on the same scale. Yeah, I I think I might be wrong, but I think that we have um, I think we've talked about this, and I think there is evidence that uh, the reliever market is much more rational at mm-hmm. this point, and the so there's probably you know most I think most teams aren't necessarily willing to give up what it takes to get Craig Kimbrell at this point. Um, and maybe that means that the market is overcorrected. And look, if the Red Sox win, I guarantee you if the Red Sox win, one of us will use the term zig when others zagged <laughs> to describe this, right? Yeah. It will look good if they win. We will talk about how the, the market overcorrected and the Red Sox were aggressive about pursuing a quality asset and it worked for them. If it doesn't work, then you're like, yeah, I don't know what's wrong with them. 29 other teams were too smart to do this. They were the only team that would, would that would do this. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's obviously it's really hard to know which that is. It's hard to know whether 29 teams are all dumb or 29 teams are all smart. Yeah. And, and to this, be clear, it's was, not the the contract because Kimbrel got one of those contracts. You know, he got a four year, 43 million deal with a, a team option. But what's remaining on his contract, I think, probably. 30 teams would pay, right? If it were just the money, he has 11 and a quarter due to him this coming season and then 13 and a quarter in 2017 and then a $13 million option for 2018. So everyone would pay that for Craig Kimbrell. It's just how many of them would pay that and also trade away a bunch of really good prospects. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That, right, the price is not the it's the prospects. Sorry, we should have said that because... Not everybody read the transaction analysis. Um, <laughs> so anyway, like there are things that there are times where we su- where we suggest that the right thing to do is to look at where the market is and go somewhere else. That you cannot win when you're doing the same thing as 24 other teams. When you're competing for the same assets in the same marketplace, that's when you get into the winner's curse, right? And that you should be gambling that you should be looking for things that nobody else is looking for and that you should be like the Royals getting contact hitters basically Mm -hmm. and then there are other times where that doesn't work and you just look like a buffoon and that's when you get 
fired or that's when you're, um, you know, Kevin Towers and you're like, wow, why does it seems weird that he likes everybody more than the industry or hates everybody more than the industry yeah. and the trades don't make any sense and then you get fired. So, <laughs> right? Yeah. It's, it's not that different. Like this is, this is, this one way or another, you, we will use this trade to explain what happened to the Red Sox next year. But honestly, we don't know whether the Red Sox are going to win 93 games or 68 games. We have no idea. There's a 25-win spread that we have discovered with no the idea. Red Sox alone in the last couple of seasons that we have no idea. Exactly. Thirdly, there is the uh, there is the problem with prospects where we know that prospects produce more value over the course of eight years at better deals over the course of eight years than veterans. In aggregate, it's not particularly close. We don't still have any real way, I think, of valuing the um, the or I guess maybe valuing the declining utility of eight years from now of a of a win eight years from now. We and partly that's because there these are maybe arguably career decisions that these GMs are making, where like. Dave Dombrowski is also an agent of Dave Dombrowski, mm-hmm. uh, subconsciously or not. Uh, and he doesn't know where he's going to be in eight years. And partly it's that you don't know where you're going to be in the winning cycle in eight years. And partly it's that you don't know where you're going to, what the market's going to be like for various things in eight, eight years. Partly it's that you don't know what the strike zone's going to be like in eight years. It is. It seems undeniable that if you just add up the wars, the prospect side is usually going to win. And there's, and it, I think everybody, that's not a particularly insightful thing that I'm saying, but even in acknowledging this, I don't think that we have like a really good guide for knowing how much to discount wins or how much to uh, put a premium on a win today as opposed to a win seven years from now or even next year or even in September. Um, and, uh, and even if we had a good guide, it wouldn't be a good guide because there's 30 teams with 30 different stories that it's very dynamic. It's like predicting weather more than five days out. Uh, the variables get so complicated and so complex that you're really just now you're back to using one size fits all measures and looking at the historical average. And so for all those reasons, it's hard to say with like any particular confidence that this won't work out or this can't work out or even that there's not some process in place that makes sense. That all said, I heard about this trade and went, what? <laughs> yeah, it definitely. I mean, it's easy to do the like armchair analyst thing of like Dave Dombrowski suddenly is transported to Boston where he has a farm system and actual prospects. And finally, he can get the closer that he couldn't get and build the bullpen that he couldn't build in, in Detroit. And so it sort of seems like he just went wild with all this prospect talent he had and gave a bunch of it away for the you know the the daisy of his Detroit tenure yeah yeah i mean dave dombrowski is a craig kimbrell away from having two rings in detroit yeah maybe but that said he also signed jose valverde who was we now know sucks but was I think like the Rollades relief man of the year or whatever the year before. Like hadn't he just gone like 51 for 51 in saves or something like that with Houston? Uh, yeah. Like Valverde was an investment. Like Valverde was a big closer investment. 
Uh, and uh, then he did trade for um, Soria, who mm-hmm. was like a legit relief ace, not quite on the level of Kimbrell, but actually probably if you look at Soria's numbers in the first half of that year before the trade, uh, he probably was as good as Kimbrell was last year, just my guess. And if you look at Soria's history, with obviously there's a health gap in the middle, but if you just look at what he'd done, he is also a guy who, over the course of his career, uh, had been maybe the second best closer in the game behind Rivera when he was healthy. Um, and uh, certainly like a top five-ish guy, um, mm-hmm. a guy that you'd carve out a loophole for. Valverde um, and, was actually an all-star twice with Detroit and once finished fifth in Cy Young voting. The year that he, the year that he, was that the year that, or did he, no, 2012 was the year that he basically got replaced by Phil Coke in the playoffs, right? Yeah. And then never was, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Valverde, right, that didn't even turn out badly. Mm-hmm. I don't remember what year I'm thinking about where he went. Obviously, he didn't go 51 for 51 because he never saved 51 years. But he had some crazy year. I forget which year. But he was really good with Houston before they signed him in the year before. And so I guess that is that. There you go. That's the whole thing. Like, that's all, everything I just said for 20 minutes in that statement. Yeah. <laughs> right. He was what he was supposed to be for a couple of years. And now if we remember him, it's more as a mistake. Yeah. 2011 was when he didn't blow a save. So that's what you're thinking of. Okay. 49 saves. All right. So uh, do you feel like the, now we're really way, 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 way into speculation territory here. So we'll just caveat that right, right there. But this does feel like a Dombrowski move. Like this, to, like uh, somebody, met, I, I Tim Britton might have, said this or something, but like you can't, uh, I think Brian McPherson did. You can't, no, the other one. <laughs> Red Sox Tomas, have too Tomas. many good, too many good beat writers. Anyway, one of them mentioned that uh, this is like 100%, I don't know if that's true, but 100% that Theo Epstein would not have made this trade. Right. And Ben Sherrington would not have made this trade. And we don't know, we don't have enough of a signature of, of Mike Hazen. But we know that the front office is basically still the same front office, uh, besides Dombrowski, and that Hazen grew up under those guys and is a guy who presumably shared a lot of their uh, ways of building a team and thinking about a team. Got some Frank Wren in there now, former Kimbrel GM. That's true. That's interesting. Uh, But yeah, I wrote last week. Did you see the thing I wrote last week? About former GMs trading for, or new GMs trading for their former players, yeah. Yeah, or more more likely not trading for their yeah. players. Uh, anyway, so the, uh, again, super speculative, but does this to you suggest that there is, like, uh, I don't know, that, that, that this, that Dombrowski and the, what we think of as the more classic Red Sox, like, I love Dombrowski, like, Dombrowski is an all-timer, right? Mm-hmm. He is, he is a great GM. Um, and, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, uh, like what I asked about a week ago on Twitter, which GMs, how many GMs do you think will make the hall of fame at some point and who are they? And the most common responses were, do you want to answer this? And to put, to give you a little bit of context, there's only, (laughs) there aren't many in there. There's there's only like four GMs. And, um, I think like maybe two of them you could argue were just for winning. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's it, it has always been extremely rare. So part of the question that you have to answer is, do you think that that's going to always be the case? Or are GMs now sufficiently like managers that we'll see them inducted at 
the same rough rate that a manager would, which would be, you know, three or four per generation. Yeah, you'd think now that we focus on front offices and executives so much that we would start to see more in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, the only problem, I don't know, I think the only reason that you wouldn't start to see more in the Hall of Fame is that they don't, they're not as photogenic because they don't wear hats. <laughs> like you, you can't carve a, it's harder to carve a, a, a plaque of a guy who's not wearing a hat. It doesn't look like a baseball guy. Yeah, right. Got to wear hats. That's a new the new GM inefficiency. Which is <laughs> guy who will wear a hat. Yeah, that's anyway. That's so a good point. so active. We're talking active GMs or you know president of baseball ops. Active. So they have to be active. Who do you got? Who do you think will be in there? Say within the next I don't know, fifty years. I mean, there are a lot of well, I I guess Alderson. I don't, I don't, it's weird because I don't, like, do you have to win World Series to be a, a Hall of Fame GM? You, you'd think so. You can't just do it for being Billy Bean and, and being influential. I mean, can you? I don't know. I guess that's what you're asking. But you would put Bean in if, if it were like a innovators or people who changed baseball or updated front offices or something. But if he doesn't win a World Series, then... It seems like a, it would be a tough sell for a lot of people. So, wait, you did you say Alderson? Are you talking about Alderson or Bean? I mentioned both. I I guess Alderson is a is a better bet because he did win. Yeah. So, so let's say Alderson, Sabian, um, <laughs> which is not something that anyone would have expected several years ago for us to be saying that he would be a Hall of Fame general manager, but. Sabian and Theo, and that's probably the, that seems like the only people that have a better than even chance. So uh, Bean and Theo were the, by far the two most common responses. And mm. partly because of that and partly because I agree, I think they're, they're likely in. You're right about Bean. It, it is tricky. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's very tricky. To uh, to put a GM in who had thirty some years and didn't win in right. World Series, uh, but I would guess that I mean Theo seems like if Theo wins with the Cubs, yeah, then he's then in. it's like they might they might you know, wave the wave the wave the thing right waiting so, period. Uh, but he, I think regardless, Theo is uh, I think Bean gets in before Alderson. So those two were the top two responses. Alderson was probably the the next most, and then probably, uh, and then Dombrowski and Sabian in that order, and then I think Cashman. Uh, yeah, as Cashman far as has longevity going for him, and the uh-huh. fact that we like him a lot, <laughs> but uh, I don't know, it seems like if you were a, and he, obviously he won lots and lots of World Series, yeah. but I don't know how much that will be discounted by the fact that he works for the Yankees. Of course, he should win World Series, and he didn't really build the the dynasty teams from scratch. I think, yeah, I think he needs another one too. You can, if you right. go out in a fifteen year run of not winning with three hundred million dollar payrolls, then well, he won in two thousand nine. No, I know, but I assume that was six years ago, and I assume he's going to be a GM for quite a bit longer. Mm-hmm. And so he, if you, if he were to go out with a run of fifteen years of not winning with three hundred million dollar payrolls, yeah. that would be. That would seem to tarnish it, but uh, and then nobody really mentioned. I think one person mentioned Friedman, 
and Friedman is young and we don't know what he's going to do, but just knowing that both his place in the game and his apparent skill level uh, and that he's in some ways fit between Bean and Theo just as far as sheer saber integration into mm-hmm. the game. Uh, Friedman seems like a, a, a bet. You could bet on him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, to, to what was I talking about? Dombrowski. Uh, yeah. Dombrowski was, I think, the fourth or fifth uh, most common response. And I, the reason I asked the question is because I was writing something somewhere and was wondering about whether Dombrowski is a Hall of Famer uh, and is at that level. And, of course, he's had, you could argue, three very successful runs, turning bad teams into good ones, uh, in some cases extremely bad teams into extremely good ones. He's only won a World Series with one of them, and so I don't know if that's a problem, but uh, he's been a very successful GM. So that uh, that's a prelude to say that um, it also, I don't know where to put him philosophically uh, along with the Red Sox kind of more well-known philosophy. Yeah. Uh, and... I'm curious looking at this trade, which seems, again, to be so much more Dombrowski than what we would consider, uh, you know, Red Sox canon, that I wonder if this is a suggestion of a real split and perhaps real tension to come. Yeah, I don't know if I don't know if there will be tension, obviously, that requires knowledge of the front office's inner workings that we don't really have. But I think you could say that it reinforces the suspicion when he was hired that we'll see a slightly different or maybe dramatically different way of doing business and sounds like the Red Sox will be a a leading candidate for a a top starting pitcher so that seems like a, a break from last year's stance which was we'll just get these guys who are pretty good and we don't necessarily need to get an ace and it seems like he wants the shiny positions. He wants the ace. He wants the elite closer. And so, yeah, maybe those are areas where the previous regime would have felt like we're overpaying. And maybe he'll feel like we're overpaying, but we have lots of prospects and we have money. And yeah, we want not to have another terrible season. So, so it does seem like a shift in that sense. So uh, Dombrowski is obviously comfortable, I would say, running an organization that has a bad farm system. Yes. Uh, he succeeded with it. Now you could argue that... Maybe even that, contributed to it in that he made lots of trades. Yeah, 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 exactly. And you could maybe you could argue that uh, the lesson he would take is that eventually that comes home to roost, and that's why he's not with the Tigers anymore, and that's why the Tigers have somewhat of a pretty pessimistic outlook on at least the next year or two and maybe you know maybe the next seven years uh or you could say yeah he's comfortable doing it and for that he got to go to a couple world series and almost uh won some stuff and uh it was a good time to be in detroit it was a great time to be in detroit um while he was doing that so uh so do you think that uh, him trading these prospects, which is a good haul. I mean, there was a lot of trade value right there mm-hmm. for Kimbrel suggests that uh, his pursuit of an ace is unlikely to be in trade, that if it was, then he wouldn't have uh, unloaded those guys. And whether it is now kind of a near certainty 
that the Red Sox will do seven years and uh, give the Dodgers, Cubs, maybe Yankees, maybe someone else, uh, a, a extremely committed uh, bidding rival for Price or Granke. Like if you just knowing this, knowing that they're gonna want an ace, and knowing that he made this move, what kind of chances would you put on the Red Sox signing one of those two guys, uh, or? Is it the exact opposite? And you go, yep. Here comes the uh, here comes the uh, the the, li- the liquidating of the farm system. Uh, he's comfortable with uh, without these guys, uh, and will uh, use them the way he used prospects in Detroit to get what he considers elite right now talent. Well, I think he said, or someone high up in the front office said that this was the big trade of the off season for them, and obviously we can't just take the GM at his word. He might decide to do something different. He might intend to do something different or something different might just come along. That sounds good at the time. So those kind of comments are not binding, but it sounds like at least he's conditioning people to expect there not to be another trade for an ace and, and to think that guys like Betts and Bogarts and, and Swihart are safe. So I would guess that just based on that and the fact that the Red Sox trade chips from last season or from last winter are now just really good players that you wouldn't, they're not even trade chips anymore. They're just, they're integral parts of the team who are expected to be really good because they were really good in 2015. I would think that given that and given the market and the fact that there are tons of really good starting pitchers, that they would go after one of those guys. I don't know whether it'll be Price and Granky or whether it'll be someone from the next tier down, Cueto or Zimmerman or someone, but I would get pretty good odds on one of those guys getting signed by the Red Sox. Yeah, I wonder I wonder if Cueto and Zimmerman uh, will, will... If uh, Sky does his ace ratings again, uh-huh. you know? Uh, like his his Google Doc ace voting yeah. uh, game, which I love and which I think is great at showing sort of weird biases uh, that the public has at the top end of the pitching scale. I wonder how Cueto and Zimmerman will do this year. Cueto sort of fought his way into ace-ness, but it always seemed like uh, with a, a little bit of resistance from the public. And I wonder if just in two months, Cueto lost that and will now be considered not ace enough. And then Zimmerman, I think, was going into last year, I think, was the best pitcher in baseball that nobody, uh, that consensus did not call an ace. But then he was a little less good. And so maybe now he's no longer that thing. And in fact, maybe maybe there is a lag where now he is seen as an ace, even though he's less of one. I don't know. People hate the ace conversation. (laughs) I sure do. (laughs) All right. I don't want to talk about the other things. We're done. Okay. So that's it for today. Maybe we'll get to the other hot stove stuff. I wanted to say something about Angelton Simmons, but maybe tomorrow we do this every day. So you can send us emails at podcast at baseballperspectus.com and subscribe to the podcast and rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild and support our sponsor, The Play Index, at baseballreference.com. Use the coupon code BP when you subscribe to get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. We'll be back tomorrow.